When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever said, can I borrow five bucks? Or that's a lot of dough. This slang actually comes from a time when deer skins were used as a form of currency. Native Americans were intricately involved in global trade networks, so much so that their most abundant resource became synonymous with money itself. Today, we welcome Beau Robbins to discuss the North American fur trade and Native economies. This is Too Complicated for History. Too Complicated for History. I am Isaac S. Loftus, and every other week, my co-host and I, Dr. Lynn Price-Robbins, are joined by a guest to discuss the things that fell through the cracks in your history curriculum, the things that were too complicated to discuss in history class. Today, we are talking about the deerskin trade in 18th century America with a very special guest who I'll let Lynn introduce. Today's guest is Bo Robbins, a historian, a historical interpreter, and most importantly, my husband. Bo, I'm going to let you describe what you're going to talk about today because it's quite complicated. In fact, some might say too complicated for history. Thanks, Lynn. <laughs> yeah, I I got into living history because it was something that I found engaging when I was a young folk. I think there's always something that we can latch on to as historians or people interested in history that really spurred that interest. And for me, it was it was other historical interpreters like me. I think it's one of the most engaging ways to reach out and educate people. So that's typically the most of what I do. And the neat thing about that is is the material culture of the, of the time that we're interpreting is is vastly more important than it is to uh, scholars and academics because you know any Washington scholar like yourself worth their salt can tell you oh on this date Washington had this dinner with this people and this is the the reason and and this is what came out of that and I'm the guy that asks cool what did the table look like what did the forks look like what kind of plates were they eating off of and now that you know we get into um, historical cinema and docuseries and things like that, that I've helped with you guys. Um, it's important to, to know those details from history, to know what they looked like in order to help show the public. So, yeah, so for our audience that doesn't know, Bo, could you just say, like in a couple of sentences, explain what living history is? Because I'm sure that people have seen it, but they may right. not know yeah. the term. So a lot of people refer to them as reenactors, uh, which I consider something different. There's, there's a lot of people um, they do a lot of different historical activities where they might play dress up and reenact a certain historical event. Usually it has something to do around a battle. Usually we think of them as Civil War reenactors or reenactors of uh, American Revolution and other conflicts and so on and so forth. Um, a living history person, uh, interpreter is really somebody who, like an actor, adopts the persona of a historical person or figure, um, whether it's actual or, or somewhat amalgamated, fictitious, if you will. 
and then they interpret the history through that that activity of acting like that person. So they're they're in the first person interpreting the history for the consuming public. They go to historical events, classrooms, um, and things of that nature. You know, growing up in Central Florida, it became really evident to me that uh, nobody really understood the context, the uh, historical context of Florida and what that was like. And so um, I grew up in Central Florida, but I also lived out in the Rocky Mountains for almost 20 years as well. And one thing Hmm. I noticed out there when it comes to living history, there's just not a lot of Florida. When I grew up in history in the public school system, it was taught to me that, uh, well, Florida was discovered by this explorer. um, Ponce de Leon in the 16th century. And then nothing happened until this other explorer came around <laughs> and by the name of Walt Disney, who built a, a mouse infested <laughs> castle and the rest <laughs> is history. Um, there's also some stories about like this Johnny Appleseed character, but uh-huh. it was orange seeds instead. Um, and that's all that's ever happened in Florida period. And then of course, as an adult, as a, as a burgeoning historian, I discovered that's this really not the case. In fact, uh, the history of where I grew up is, is some of the most, history rich um in in stories and in sites and areas um because for instance saint augustine florida the old capital uh was uh 50 years old it was a thriving little metropolis by the time jamestown was settled and that's not what we hear about in virginia exactly (laughs) so (laughs) yeah first thanksgiving florida first colony florida uh 500 years of history just about so it, it's a really neat place and, and yes things happened the stories are outstanding they're crazy they're complicated they're dramatic and uh you know i wanted to help other people like me understand those stories so i did a lot with the southeastern culture where i grew up i summered in the carolinas and the appalachians um western carolina uh but then i also spent 20 years out in Wyoming, where, you know, if you want to go to an event out there, it's probably going to be a mountain man rendezvous, and which is really interesting. And that has to do with the fur hide trade, the the fashion phenomenon of the top hat, uh, which was relying on the beaver furs that were trapped out West. The, The interesting thing is to me, in my mind, this spurred this whole romantic idea of westward expansionism, of explorers. You've got tons of movies from Charlton Heston's mountain man to, uh, Robert Redford's, uh, was it Jeremiah Johnson to the most mm-hmm. recent one with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, The Revenant? Um, you can go to a mountain man rendezvous in Florida, even though the history didn't happen there. You can go to them all over the West. You can go to a mountain mountain man rendezvous in M- Maine and even Hawaii. But you can also <laughs> go to them in Europe. So it, I find it odd that this little 20-year footnote in American history, you know, it had a lot to do with our expansion as a country, but I think this romanticized idea of moving West has, uh, you know, is largely blown out of proportion in uh, contrast to this other hide trade that is almost Hmm. never talked about and didn't last for 20 years. It lasted for over 200 years, and that's the deer hide trade in uh, the Southeast North America. And the, the hide the trade in deer hides is what cemented the relationship between uh, the European colonizers. You're talking about France, uh, Spain, and England. Um, but that that's what cemented their relations to Native America uh, was this deer hide trade that lasted for two centuries. And that's something I really, really enjoy talking about and uh, interpreting. Yeah, I think there's, and we're going to get into it, but just to prep our listeners for this, this is the complexity of this trade network and the sophistication of it blew my mind. 
the first time I heard about it. Because there is a we talk about sort of like the fantasy inter- like in, in the popular imagination of what that time was like. I, I, I guess the way we, the reductive version of the way we picture those times is very much like a barter and trade system. We're like, hey, I have three chickens and you have two pigs. Um, can I give you, you know, two chickens for half a pig, whatever, you know, like that kind of, that's exactly. the, that's as sophisticated as the economy got, but that's not that's the case at all. That I think that we're taught in elementary school when we're taught that, you know, like around maybe Thanksgiving time or whenever, yeah. you know, yeah. public schools got into uh, any kind of native American topics. It's, it's, yeah. You know um, the way I, I like to analogize it is like, I think at least those of us at our age, I know they still exist, like at Dave and Buster's, but maybe maybe it was Chuck E. Cheese's. To me, we had this this putt-putt place that had all these video games, and you go in and you play whack-a-mole, and you win the tickets, and then you go into their little you know, gift shop or whatever, and you cash them in for whatever kind of knickknacks, you know, probably a plastic uh, cone. Yeah. Yeah. Something, something <laughs> made in China and you get yeah, plastic, cone, whatever you save up your little tickets and then you cash them in for whatever you can afford out of that little shop. And that's exactly how the deer hide trade, but instead of playing whack-a-mole, they were playing whack-a-deer. Um, but, something else that's important that I think really shocked me is that we hear in history, um, sort of in the age of industrialization and moving, you know, forward there, this idea of globalization. You never think of that term as relating to indigenous Americans. Absolutely. Right. And and so what I'm getting to is is the reality of the 18th century British Native American relation was that, you know, instead of cashing your tickets in for all these little foreign manufactured trinkets, they're actually going into the shop taking whatever they needed or wanted. And then the following year saying, okay, well now I'm going to have to bring you back X amount of tickets of value. And so mm. everything flowed on a system of credit. And this right. is what, um, you know, the globalization does because when you're moving massive amounts of manufactured goods from Europe to North America and massive amounts of deer skins and other commodities back to Europe, and, and it's not just England, it's, it's a low, a global export economy. It all has to move on credit. And so the reality was these indigenous people down in the Southeast, they are uh, essentially getting goods from the traders on a system of credit at the beginning of the year. And then at the end of hunting season, they're due however many bucks or buck skins Mm -hmm. that they owe. And this was all very heavily, this was all very heavily uh, regulated um, at at times, um, (laughs) some more than others, but, uh, you know, it, it does a number of things for for the British uh, in particular. Now, the France and Spain they're doing they're doing this too, right? So, to paint this picture of, of what North America looks like at the beginning of the 18th century, you have um, we'll start in the West. You have the French corridor, which is the Mississippi corridor. They've got a chain of forts all the way up and down the Mississippi from Canada all the way down to New Orleans. And then on the on the east side, you've got the British. You know, the 13 colonies on the on the Atlantic coast, but then you also have Spain, they have Florida and some of the East Indies, uh, West Indies, Mexico, and so forth. Uh, now, now in the middle sandwiched in the middle of that Appalachian corridor between France and British holdings are also three competing superpowers. And in the, in the North, you've got the, the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois Confederacy, who are up in the Northern Appalachia, uh, Adirondacks, Great Lakes area, what's today New York. And 
Then in the southern end, below the Appalachian Corridor, Alabama, Georgia, into Tennessee, you've got the Creek Confederacy. And then sandwiched in the middle of them, in the Appalachian Corridor, you've got the Cherokee. And there's other tribes, the Westos, the, the Shawnee, the Oconee, the uh, just uh, Catawbas. There's just tons of them, but they're they're not quite the superpowers and the, they don't have the confederacies that the Creeks do in the South or the Cherokee and, and the Iroquois do up North. And so that you've got three major European superpowers dom, uh, vying for dominance here, this North American continent before the seven years war. And they're using these other three superpowers to um, help cement their foothold in North America. So what this trade does is basically six things. It creates these politically essential alliances, because if you're not actively trading with your neighbor, you're at war with them. And so you want to be on their good side and you get on their good side through trade. Uh, And so through these alliances, number two, you're creating your auxiliary martial forces. So you've got military forces in the form of these native gunmen who can fight on your behalf. And they can fight either your enemies, if you're British, might be the French and the French allied other uh, natives. And um, that's a that's a really good thing as a protection force or a buffer zone between these competing colonies. But it also creates a market for European manufactured goods. And at the time, in the 18th century, we're going through an industrial revolution. And manufacturing processes are getting very refined, very good at producing quality goods cheaply in mass quantities. And so now, uh, you know, Europe's looking at, at these, uh, these indigenous populations going, wow, there's a whole new consumer base for these goods, but they're not getting them for free. They're generating raw materials. So number four, you've got the generation of raw materials for this emerging European manufacturing core in the form of leather, uh, mm-hmm. deer skins. And that's because there was a blight going on in the early 18th century it comes about again in the 1750s uh, on cattle and believed to be uh, um, originated in France. So the, the British embargoed all French imports of bovines from France um, mm. byproduct of which is leather. Uh, many, many things were used from leather uh, used for leather like book binding, upholstery, uh, industrial sure. belting sure. materials, garments, you know, whatever. Um, so, so leather was in short supply and it was a hot commodity. There's also another fashion trend booming in the 18th century, just like the beaver fur top hat. Now the beaver top hats did exist prior to that. And that was a part of what led on the fur trade in the late 17th century. But then that fades, people began making these hats out of buckskin, but more predominantly it was buckskin breeches. I mean, Washington even wore a pair. It was like your blue jeans of the 18th century. Um, and, uh, there was a dire need for hmm. really soft, supple, uh, garment weight leather. And, um, this eventually number five draws natives out of a subsistence economy into a global export economy. They were hunter gatherer and agrarian people, uh, all the way up and down the Appalachian corridor until they get like, as Lynn pointed out, they get drug into this global export economy because the goods that they're receiving and producing are going into a global market. So when we think of an 18th century, you know, Creek Indian, for example, what did they look like? You know, in school, we're probably taught that they're dressed in furs and hides and buckskins and things like this. And uh, before contact, yeah, that's absolutely the case. But after within just a few generations of being engaged in this trade, they're 
absolutely dressed and almost virtually completely by foreign manufactured goods. So their leggings, their breech cloths are made out of British wool, um, Irish linens for the shirts. They're wearing beads that were probably made in either Murano or Amsterdam. A lot of a lot of them wore fancy feathers in their hair, the same that uh, were favored by ladies and ladies' hats and officers' hats. These are ostrich plumes. Where do they come from? Well, they're from Africa. They're painting themselves right. with vermilion that was mined in India um, as in the form of cinnabar. Uh, huh. Highly toxic, but a very vibrant <laughs> red color. Uh, so they're, <laughs> it equals out. you know, yeah. So in re- re- reality, the only thing they're wearing that's uh, of indigenous manufacturers are moccasins. They predominantly stay, you know, made out of buckskin into the 19th century. And, uh, but otherwise they're just completely adorned and, um, and, uh, engrossed in, in consumer foreign manufactured goods. So sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. There's a lot to get into, I think, for all those. It's super important. But to, so just to make sure that our listeners understand exactly the function of this, can we, let's get really micro. So say I'm a member yeah. of the Cherokee Nation, like, and I am, I'm yeah. a young man, and, and I'm looking to, you know, uh, I, I could either be hunting right now, or uh, there is a trading post out here that's been established that I might be able to trade some buckskins for like so how 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 would someone like that become involved in this uh coming on like on like a one like a micro level so on a micro level you know it depends on the age you know we think of uh natives as using the bow and arrow but by the Mm -hmm. by the beginning of the 18th century most of them had guns now Mm -hmm. you're obviously not handing your 10 year old a gun but kids would start out using bow and arrows or the older technology, you know, blow guns uh, would be a good one in the Southeast where the river cane grows. They would hunt with blow guns probably to protect their mother's garden and things like that, that nature. It teaches them patience, gives them something to do. It's kind of fun. It builds their hunter instincts until their uncle or somebody would make them their first bow and arrow, which they could use to hunt deer. And, uh, at, at that time, let's say, in 1767 and the prices stay pretty static throughout the 18th century but you're looking at about 16 pounds of buckskins for a gun and so once you save up 16 bucks then you can move on from the bow and arrow to the gun and start uh, becoming a very very proficient hunter in order to engage in the trade you have to be able to procure what the trader wants which is buckskins and so you walk into the trading post in the beginning of the year, probably prior to hunting season, you you get yourself what you need. You're going to need powder. You're going to be ammunition, maybe some gun tools, uh, maybe you need some clothing um, and so forth. Uh, so you're going to acquire these things on credit. And then at the end of the year, hopefully you've acquired enough buckskins to pay off that debt, which was usually capped off at about 30 bucks. Um, at that time, you know, you've proven yourself as a provider and you can go ahead and, and start looking at, you know, getting a wife or two. Sure. So the, all that stuff is, so the things that you are necessary to acquire the buckskins at the volume that the trader, like to engage, you basically, I need a gun and I need the powder and all that stuff like that. All that is foreign manufacturing. Like we're not, I'm not, I'm not able to like, so the money that I'm bringing in is really leaving uh, yeah. to go get the, 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 the gear necessary to do that again the next season. Yes, everything that they were consuming is is basically uh, it's a wear part. It's it's expendable. Um, you know, it's it's not going to be something that lasts. These they used mm-hmm. these guns 
and cannibalize them until there nearly aren't any left. There, there might be one or two floating around out there in a museum somewhere as far as like a good 18th century trade gun. Um, mm-hmm. That's how, you know, there were so many of them coming in. They were used so much that there's actually none of them left, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, they, the, they also have a custom, you know, especially in the, with the, the Creek people uh, in, in their busk, which is their kind of like the New Year. Uh, think of it as a green corn ceremony in the height of August, the heat of the summer, once the corn uh, crop is is established, but not yet ripe, so to speak. Uh, they would have a four-day ceremony. And traditionally, uh, all their old food stores, a lot of their pots, a lot of their own indigenously manufactured goods was destroyed and then made anew. All the huh. fires it, were relit. And it's kind of this renewal ceremony. The traders love that because, you know, here they were once a year, you know, placing their order saying, <laughs> oh, they're going to go through their busk ceremony. We better load up the storehouse because they're all going to need new stuff right after green corn. Gotcha. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and then that that leads right into hunting season in the fall. So, um, so. so yeah. So talking about the economy and sort of the the change in the culture, I think it would help if you could give us an idea of how families worked before. So what was the man's job? What was the woman's job mm-hmm. when they were subsistence economy? And then how that changed when they became this this global culture, essentially, with the new economy? Well, yeah, that's a real great question. That leads us to, to the one of the biggest unintended consequences of what the trade did was it, it led to societal change. Number obviously we touched on that and you know, you had foreign manufactured when mm-hmm. before contact, they're making all their tools out of stone, bone, shell, things of that nature. They're making them themselves. And then within just a few generations, that's oblivious. It's, it's gone. It's just, um, they lose all their indigenous manufacturing pro- processes are uh, c- become completely reliant on the foreign manufactured goods. So mm-hmm. that's one way in which their society changed. But as far as like the structure of the family, they were heavily bifurcated with gendered tasks, um, primarily in the creeks where there's man things and there's woman things and they don't cross. And what happens is Women, obviously, are the producers of the progeny because women give birth to the children. So children was primary uh, responsibility of the women. Uh, the children actually belong to the women and their tribe or their family, their clan. And the clans all follow a matrilineal descendancy. So hmm. um, instead of like today where we'd go on Jerry Springer to find out who the father <laughs> is, they really don't care because your mother <laughs> is still your mother. <laughs> so, gotcha. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's so yeah. they, yeah, that's completely ignored. Fathers have uh, very little responsibility. The men in the family who are responsible for the upbringing of other young boys would be the, the, the matrilineal uncles. So, um, you know, your, your mother's brothers would be responsible for showing you the ropes of, of manhood and uh, becoming a warrior. And, and then women taught the girls um, not to go off on a, on a tangent here, but that actually really explains how you get these men who are, um, the sons of the, uh, colonials, 
Yes. Right. And especially if they're rich mm-hmm. colonials or wealthy colonials and have like a native mother, how they were getting the best of both worlds. Right. They're they like, really hey, I, get, I have like, get, if, if I have a good lineage on my native side, on my mother's side, then I, I am of good status here. And then on my father's side, I have like, you know, I'm inheriting all of his stuff or his wealth or whatever. It yeah, is. That's an interesting. Yeah. So that's an interesting dynamic because there are a ton of of men who are, you know, had, had colonial or you know Scottish European fathers. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. that made name for themselves and were very important people, but that helps explain why, you know, they ended up being important but, in both yeah. societies. But the more, right. an, the better answer Lynn's question. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. That was a this, this, <laughs> this sexual bifurcation attacks, uh, tasks starts to erode, you know, uh, the men are responsible for the, the life taking because women bring life into the world. Men take it away. Men are the hunters and the warriors. So they're good uh-huh. at killing things and breaking stuff. The <laughs> women are the exact opposite. We bring life into the world, our children, we take care of the children, but also farming was the responsibility of the women because it's growing things, it's creating life. And uh, that starts to erode. Once the populations of the deer either decline or the demand for the deer skins goes up, men are spending more and more time of the year devoted to hunting. And they're hunting so many deer that they can't afford to process these hides as quickly. So now they're bringing women onto the hunting trail, into the hunting camps to process these hides. Men are going out and dragging deer into the camp just as fast as they can. And women Mm. are spending more and more of their time away from their fields in the men's hunting camps in order to process the hides that once they get back to town in the off season, the men are having to make that up by helping the women in the fields. Mm. And this became and necessary so, in part because like, hey, we don't have the domestic manu- manufacturing. Because why? And I need to have the new stuff. And I can only buy that from 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 the trading posts or via imports with processed deer hides. So right. that's analogy to today would be how, you know, most uh you know, two parent households, both parents work because mm-hmm. a woman almost has to work nowadays just to pay the man's income taxes. Right. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, we, we went through this actually discussion with my, um, uh, just for, for the listeners who don't know, I have a nine month old son. Um, and, uh, we were trying to, we actually had to go through and do the math and budget out whether it was even worth it for my wife to go back to work at any point because a hundred percent of her income would be going to childcare. So Absolutely. it's like, at, at, you know, at a certain level, like wh- what do we, you know, what value are we doing here? Like, are we adding anything by doing that? Or are we just, you know, contracting out the work of raising our son? Right. Um, but that's an interesting dynamic that, that, that debt focused economies suffer from it. That's like, you know, where right. it's, you're reliant on that, on purchasing um, stuff from outside of the home or imports or whatever. And I imagine things like art and skills that maybe are less necessity, but mm-hmm. more about making beautiful things. Leisure activities. Those are going to fall off. A lot of skills are not going to be passed on to children because mm-hmm. there's just no time. So you're losing a lot hmm. of that as well. Absolutely. Huh. That's, it's, that's a really, this is a really unique and enlightening example of how, you know, trade and regu- like you know regulations and rules and how things happen have unintended consequences and societal change it's not necessarily the, like the the other way around because like you could explain this like an, an economist could explain this like the pots were better 
They really Therefore, were. that's the ones that they <laughs> wanted, right? And that's why they stopped doing all of the things that they wanted. It's like, no, that's not necessarily true. They are better. Yes, that's absolutely. <laughs> but they didn't choose to stop pursuing their lifestyle because they wanted to do this. It was mm-hmm. out of necessity because of all these other mitigating factors. That's an interesting um, complication to that. Because they weren't making guns. They weren't making these things that they absolutely yeah. needed. Right. So you're constantly, it's like, it's like working. You're constantly in debt. It's so like your credit you, card. You, <laughs> and you're right. constantly trying to pay it back. And you said a lot of deer, like how, how many deer skin are we talking about? Like how many left American shores in a given, whatever, now, like what's a, is there a good varies, metric? Um, so in the early, early days of the trade, let's say 1698 through 1715, just prior to the Amacy war, you're looking at, at about 53,000 deer hides per annum. Um, <laughs> now, now that drastically drops the following year because of something called the Yamasee War. And one of the reasons why the uh, the trade was heavily regulated was in the early, those early days, one of the biggest commodities wasn't necessarily just deer skins or hides or clay or naval stores, but it was actually people. And so natives were actually going out and capturing slaves from uh, other uh, enemies and things like that, bringing them back to the British and selling them off as slaves. And they'd go down to, um, the West Indies, probably, um, get them off of the continent. So they couldn't run off and they were, uh, ended up growing things like sugar, um, Tobacco. Well, if they ended up in the West Indies, it explains why there's not a lot of like communities left. Because yeah. <laughs> you know, they, right. they worked them to in the West for you know the West Indies, they, they worked, worked them to death. death. Yeah. And, and in Florida, this was a uh, one of the more extreme examples. A lot of the, there, there just really aren't any first um Floridians left. Uh hmm. some genetics might still exist down in Cuba. They might have gotten mixed in with the Spanish, and when the Spanish left um after the American Revolution, they they might have ended up there. Um, so a few might've assimilated in with the Seminole, uh, we're not really sure, but, but most died either through the ravages of slave raids or disease, um, and, and aren't known to survive to this day. Uh, but anyway, it jumps. So, so those numbers drop during the Yamasee war, uh, which was the, um, pretty much a lot of the people in the Southeast, primarily the Yamasee, some of the creeks, they decided they were being taken advantage of by the, the, by the traders. And they were tired of all this conflict being um, inherently thrust upon them. So the rumors would spread sure. like, oh, these people are going to attack you or, you know, these people are mm-hmm. fixing to attack you. And so that would be a boon for the traders who could sell a lot of ammunition by keeping them oh. in conflict with each other. But um, they got tired of enslaving each other. And so they went to war with the Carolinians in 1715 with the help of some of the Creeks. Um, that lasted about a year. It was very devastating on the southeastern colonies. Uh, so only 4,702 hides were shipped that year. Oh. But the numbers go back up. By 1721, we're up to 60,000 and the oh. numbers only climb. 1741, just out of Augusta alone, 100,000 pounds of deer hides were exported. That's just out of Augusta. Out of, out of there, Augusta. Do we have like a, a peak? Is there like a, a, hey, this was the top of the, the uh, yeah, at any given yeah. year? Yeah, John Stewart, who was the second um, superintendent of British Indian affairs down in the Carolinas. In 1764, he claims that 800,000 pounds of deer skins were exported. So sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. Okay, I don't mean to sound stupid, but how did we not run out of deer? I mean, we did. 
<laughs> it just sounds so, ridiculous. So we did. Their populations declined, <laughs> and, the, and by the 19th century, they were the white-tailed deer in North America was darn near extinct. That does not surprise huh. me. Um, and, and this, they recovered really well. A lot of, not only did it recover very well, there's <laughs> yes, it uh, did. <laughs> it, there's probably more whitetail here now than there ever were. Yeah, so there's a lot of deer. Stories. Yeah, we see them um, everywhere. Just one, one thing with the, the Yamasee War that's actually, I think, is interesting for context going forward is that that conflict was pretty, was, you said it was devastating for the Southeastern colonies. Mm-hmm. Um, it was so bloody that they never really felt the same way towards Native people again. Absolutely <laughs> like not. It, it colored the way that those colonies and then later states approached their interactions with Native nations forever. Right. There's yeah, a reason why. On yeah. There's a reason why that those folks are like the first ones to push west, like the first areas for mm-hmm. removal, like all of those things after after America is founded. It's partly because, like, hey, we've had a lot of really, really intense conflict with these folks. We don't we don't see we we have there's animosity that lingered. For and a most long time. of the regulation of the trade is is saw uh, right thereafter. Like that's mm. really where the regulation comes in. So all the traders were licensed uh, before the Yamasee War, you know, and we see this again in the in the 1790s with with the American, um, you know, we touch on that in the docu series and things like that. But but uh, every colony was kind of going all sui sponte dealing with these folks on their own, and that right. doesn't work because, you know, for instance, the Cherokee. They're dealing with the Carolinas. They're dealing with Georgia. They're also dealing as far as north as Williamsburg and Virginia. And so there's a lot of overlap. And what one colony does affects all the others. Mm -hmm. And we see that in the Cherokee War in 1760. But, um, you know, some of these things are unavoidable. But uh, in reality, the royal authorities understood that they needed to take over the assumption of control and licensure so that, uh, what one colony did wasn't affecting another. Hmm. And so this, they, that, yeah, formed, that's an interesting thing. They yeah. formed the British department of, uh, Indian affairs. Mm-hmm. Basically it was a British Indian department. It was mm-hmm. broken down into two hemispheres. You had, uh, Sir William Johnson up in the North dealing with the, um, Iroquois mostly. Uh, he was up in Albany and, He's dealing with the northern sector and in charge of that, but then in the southern sector. So from Virginia on south, you had another superintendent in the southern department. Uh, Edmund Atkins was the first, followed by John Stewart and then William Burnfoot Brown. And um, they did a lot to uh, help ensure the alliances, secure um, trading partners, license the traders. Um, so they were, they were traveling quite a bit going from town to town, trying to put out fires, kissing hands, shaking babies, that kind of thing. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> how, how in the world did, out of curiosity, keep, did folks keep track of like this credit? Cause I assume that tr- the trading post, right? So like I have all this ammunition, right? They don't have the skins to pay for that like they must have been operating on some level of speculation and credit like, or some level of credit or li- liquidity mm-hmm. on their own too i assume that they're Absolutely. not buying buying the, their their ammunition with um liquid capital mostly because there was not a lot of money in like just actual physical they call it the, right. the term spe- species there's, yeah. yeah there's not a lot of actual money available in north america at the time at all there so wasn't to, yeah. So I assume yeah. that they like they're getting creditors that are using their money. Like, 
I, I imagine like paper ledgers, like tracing all the way back to like the Netherlands all the way down Very to cool. like here must have been super complex. Like that system is insane, but it was all on paper. Yeah? Like, yeah, there was just, about five levels of speculation. You have the exporters of these uh, goods. So they're buying up goods from the manufacturers in England. Uh, most uh, of these guys are out of London or Bristol. Uh, a lot okay. of the stuff's coming out of either Birmingham, London, Bristol, Gloucester, and being exported from there. Um, now those folks are sending the goods here to North America on, on a system of credit to uh, the importers of the goods. So you had guys, merchants, big ones like Henry Lawrence and some of these others uh, in South Carolina who are just importing massive amounts of goods. And then they are moving it to these actual businesses, these corporations. Um, a lot of them dealt specifically with the trade uh, there was at one time what was called the uh, Augusta Company. And a lot of people don't know for the listeners, Augusta, Georgia was almost specifically formed to be an Indian trade hub. And for all these goods to move, there was a, a road north to the Cherokee. There was a road out west to the upper creeks, a road to the southwest to the lower creeks. There was another road that went to the Choctaws and the Chickasaws um, who lived right down the road near Silver Bluff. Uh, so most of these big players, as far as the trading partners, lived and operated out of Augusta for the longest time. Those goods would move through places like Charleston and Augusta, and then they would get on pack horses. Uh, these pack horses were going to the Indian towns, to the individual trade houses, wherever they might be. And they were usually somewhere in the neighborhood of like 250 mules thick. Uh, you would have about one pack horseman responsible for five horses or or mules. They're just loaded to the gilt with everything from beads to uh, guns and steel, knives, uh, tools, hoes, gardening implements, cooking inf implements, and then textiles, because this deer hide trade could be considered a textile trade if you look at the, the other direction. One other than guns, the largest desirable commodity was textiles. English wools, linens, things like that to clothe people. Uh, but you also have silver ribbons and other decorative embellishments that aren't necessities, but don't women mm. like them. And, you know, beads and silver. And then, of course, rum, which was extremely regulated because it had disastrous effects at times uh, when plied illegally by unlicensed traders. But anyway, you, you got to imagine 200 pack horses just loaded to the hilt with with British consumables heading west to these towns. And when they get there, they unload it. The trader, who's the third or fourth in line, he puts all his stuff in the warehouse and he's the one doling it out. Um, you know, he, he's, right. he's the operator of the convenience store, so to speak. The point of and contact for all of this he's stuff. He's the point too. of contact. He's, he's the one that has the reputation. He lives in the town. Uh, because of that, they were almost always married to one of the native women of that town or nearby towns. Mm. And that was to establish his clan status because men usually join there. You have to marry someone of a different clan. Obviously these Europeans didn't belong to any, so they were good to go, but they were, you, you basically, once you marry, you belong to the clan of your wife, mm. sort of you're, you're allied with that until the marriage is dissolved for whatever reason. But, um, but that makes sure that at least he has some kind of familial context within the society, because then, 
you know, it's her cousins and brothers that are going to be protecting your storehouse, making sure that everybody just doesn't go in there and take things willy nilly. Sure. Um, and, and usually they were, you know, someone uh, of prominent stature. Uh, these, these women married to these traders who was, um, something that helped cement the relationship between the, the British and the trading partners to that indigenous society. It was something that helped, um, give them a little bit more credence in town. Plus that storehouse was like the place to be, you know, that was the hangout. That was where all the news came from. So, um, having, having a lady, uh, aligned with that more closely gives her a lot of clout. So anyway, all that, all those goods are flowing there. And from there, the pack horses are loading up with the deer skins that are being supplied. And it's not, you know, like, uh, you know, going to the counter at the at, at Dave and Buster's with your handful of tickets. It's, it's all these deer that are saved up throughout the season. So we're talking hundreds of pounds of hides loading onto hundreds of pack horses. And now they're making the long trek back to Augusta and then to Charleston. And, uh, so, huh. so just like in Virginia, where there the the form of species was mostly in the form of tobacco, mm-hmm. bales and pounds of tobacco, we even had tobacco notes. The same things happening, but that form of species in in bales of deer hides. Hmm. So, is that where the word buck comes from? Like, why that's referred to really as does. dollars? There's some speculation as to it, but my my fervent belief is that yes, absolutely, we see it uh, references to it in the. Uh, 18th century. Now, if your listeners have ever heard the term, it takes a lot of dough to make a buck. It's not D-O-U-G-H, it's D-O-E, because mm-hmm. doe skins were worth relatively half that of buck skins to, based on their thickness and size um, disparity. So hmm. um, that's why they started going to, instead of one buck skin, um, it was pounds of skins, because then you could have some dough thrown in there. Um, sure. And then you go by weight. So, um, you know, relatively speaking, a doe was worth a Spanish dollar or a shilling, one shilling, you know, one, one dollar. Um, so that's, that's really where the term starts to originate. And we still use that term today. And that, so the, then let's track those deer skin back the other direction. Cause we talked yeah. a little bit about it, but specifically, so those deer skins are leaving Charleston, getting on a boat, going back to England. Yeah. Just like tobacco, they go back to England to be processed Um, If they're not already tanned, they would be commercially tanned in an industrial setting, and then they would be um, exported by leather merchants to go wherever. Whoever needed the leather would buy from them. And Back to the colony. A lot of these speculators (laughs) don't even realize that they're engaged in this huge system of Indian trade. To them, it's just, oh, you know, this is where we get, we don't know where it comes from. It's just, just stuff we need. And it comes from I've got a leather country. guy and he delivers me leather. And then I, yeah. tra- I show like, you know, or, or skins um, and I turn into leather and then I send to France and then I get turned into top hats or whatever, or bridges, yeah. whatever, or yeah. pants. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot of these speculators aren't even sure that they're involved in this. It's just, you know, a part of their economy. That, yeah, I, that's hey, yeah. thinking about a global economy. Then, um, it, 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 I think it's incredibly, it was enlightening to me just in far as like context of the complexity of the world, like, uh, like just what you, what you described in the level of credit and the tracking of credit over seasons, over years. For some reason, it feels impossible. But it, it happens. Impossible. It, yeah. it feels impossible to have done because I guess I'm just so 
I, I take for granted the fact that it's like a credit card that goes on a machine. Like it's a computer that does all of this stuff um, for us these days. Uh, but it, it feels impossible. Uh, but it, I guess it just it, took it, a lot it, longer. It was, you know, leading up to the Amasi War, the, um, the Cherokees as a whole were something like 10,000 hides in debt to British merchants. And that was, and, and if you consider that the average production of them, we'll say it was probably about four to four to five thousand hides. So mm. how are they ever going to pay off that debt when they're constantly consuming, chasing, you know, chasing that debt when you know they're constantly constantly adding to it? So right? what big old British visas there. I know to they, they can't the... call and threaten from like a debt. Now, was that debt actually, did it have interest or was it, was it on, or is that at, uh, uh like zero interest debt? Like there's I, a, I'm like not a, sure. You know, I think, I want to think maybe both. I think in some cases they understood that, but in, in others, you know, because everything moves so slowly, like now, sure. like you said, it's all computer, all my credit card info is instantaneous. Back then you're talking about a boat. You know, I, I think that had to be factored in. Like, like let's give him, a, you know, let's give him a little credit here, uh, so to speak, and, and make it zero interest because we understand that you know things are going to have to take time. But um, you know, there was an, a, an assumption of debt that was unbelievably large, right? Yeah. And, and so, um, what you, you know, the Amasi War was an e- easy, easy way of, of canceling that debt. Right. It's like you got two things. You either pay it off default or you go to war with your credit. You, you, you hear that? Millennials with college loans. <laughs> you hear that? Those are, those are the three ways. Yes. <laughs> if you try to. <laughs> so what happens if you default? Well, <laughs> you know, we got to have a come to Jesus talk. And that, that seems to happen throughout like the, the 18th century, <laughs> century about every because you don't want to go to war. They, they tried right. that and that right. was horrible. And, and it does happen again, mm-hmm. you know, throughout the, the French and Indian War, the American right. Revolution and the, the Cherokee War and, and even into the Seminole Wars. And, yeah. and you go out west, you're talking about Red Clouds War into the 1870s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we knew what that was like and everyone knew that they didn't want that. Mm-hmm. Because that, number one, that disrupts the trade. But it's also, you know, intertribal warfare, interestingly enough, was was definitely good for traders. Because mm-hmm. they're, you know, like the military-industrial complex, they're, you, you know, selling all kinds of guns and ammunition. They're booming when that happens. But that, that can also disrupt the trade as well. So what happens is they come to treaty, usually in Augusta, I know, uh, 1762, 1767, you know, we come to, we come to Augusta and, and the number one commodity that they always did have that would pay off their debts was land. Oh, and oh so, interesting. You know, instead of the idea that the mm-hmm. colonizers come in and just take the land, really what it is, it's, it's a settling of the debt. Now you can argue whether or not that debt was illicitly gained. Uh, mm-hmm. in many cases it absolutely was, um, it was absolutely ill-gotten through the uh, pliance of rum and, and other sure. illicit, unlicensed behaviors. But in most cases, um, you know, it was all very well regulated. And most of the biggest traders in the game were very honest individuals. That, I did, so that brings up a question, I think. So just for context, um, this is there, there's some variance to like the details of this, but like for the most part in in, in Native nations, the like land wasn't individually held, um, generally speaking. So this is an interesting 
dynamic where like an individual debt or like a or a small group debt is then being used to take control of something that wasn't necessarily being held by so who was doing that did that lead to any conflict like hey these people are settling their debt but like you know the the town that is actually sort of like the community that is was then using the, that land as hunting ground or whatever wasn't involved in that transaction at all huge amounts necessarily. of conflict. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. Because because yes, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, as far as like Creek Society down in the southeast, there was no um, all the land was communally owned. There was no private real property, but they did obviously have the sense of uh, private property. But mostly right. it was like your your personal possessions. Uh, real property could be um, allotted to families, and families might have rights to it. But then again, it's still communal in a sense, and so. You know, as far as the lands that that the colonists wanted or the Americans wanted later on, you're looking at at the expansion of the colonies. They're expanding into native hunting grounds. This is all communal, communally owned. And what they're doing is basically negotiating parcels of it away in, right. the, in the cancellation of debt. Mm. So the royal authority comes in and says, look, we got to figure this out. The traders are owed a ton of bucks. You, you, we realize, you know, we all realize you're never going to be able to pay this off. So we'll cancel this debt. So the royal authority would settle the debt. Mm. In response, they would create a treaty that would uh, feature a land session, so to speak. And then, um, you know, it's like, well, we can settle now to this river. And then 10, 20 years later, all right, well, now we can settle to this river. And they're moving Mm. west and west and west. and that continues. I can see how that's, that's slightly more organized than like an individual person or a group of people settling with like an individual trader, right? Like trying to right. trying to settle like how they're you know that there could be some level of organization to it. And, and, and yeah, the the, uh, the interesting it. thing is, you know, as far as land ownership is concerned, you know, the, there's nothing communally owned. But um, part of the reason that to make things that more complicated is is that there's. There's no real central authority with whom to negotiate because each right. each town, uh, each town, whether it was Creek or Cherokee or whatever, these were autonomous little towns. There was no central author- uh, convening authority like a tribe that we think of today or, or tribal commission or tribal government that we have established today. That wasn't a thing. You had a town, people that lived in the town, they lived in that town. Um, each one has individual debt. And so to make things simpler, it's, it's the British coming in and saying, look, we, you know, we got to simplify this. So we're going to take all of you, paint you with a broad brush, put you into a nice tiny box because we want to deal with you all at once rather than dealing with a hundred different little towns, each with a different headman who has no real authority. Now they, that's not to say they don't get together. Yeah. Obviously the towns get together, they have their own delegates and and they come up with central ideas and beliefs that they they uh, execute. But the reality was there was no real actual authority. Like even the headman of a town, you know, he would come up with the, make decisions and issue those through his deputy. And, you know, if I live in that town, I could still say like, yeah, cool story, bro. We'll put that right here on the fridge. And I'm going to go back about my business because, you know, that, his authority was based on his abilities as a leader. And, uh, that was, that was a very neat thing about it was that it was a true meritocracy. And in a lot of sense, a lot of it was based on familial clanship and things like that. But 
you know, if they weren't a good leader, they just didn't get listened to and they got replaced. But, um, you know, the British can't deal with that. They, they got to put right. everybody in a tight little box and deal with a nation. So they're nation building. And it's the same sort of thing we saw in, in like Afghanistan, you know, when we walked into the, you know, near stone age and hmm. dealt with a bunch of little towns and a bunch of little villages there in the Hindu Kush. And these people didn't, you know, they didn't even think of themselves as, as, um, as what we did. We, we tried to put them into a box and say nation build. And they're like, yeah, pound sand. <laughs> That's, a, that's actually an interesting comparison on a number of levels. Like, you know, oh, it's the same pl- 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 you know, plugging in a, a in it's actually really prescient given um, how weak the state that the United States tried to build in Afghanistan was given mm-hmm. the events of 2022 um, and how quickly it fell. Like it, it, they, it had they just, really no foundational structure behind it. Yeah, and, they just completely you know. failed to to learn these lessons of history. Like you have to yeah. look no further than than the British um, ply for dominance in the 18th century North America. Uh, right. You know, like we could have handled that way better. Now the British they had many successes in doing this, and so they would take individual debt and say, "Look, all you guys in this town, you owe this much. Let's just consolidate that." You know, and and then let's just put that in the same box with all the other creek towns, mm-hmm. and let's let's just say, you know, y- you guys all share the hunting rights to this land over here. We'd like to have that. Um, so that's that's usually how these land sessions are coming about by uh, the consolidation of this debt. And, and don't and tell me the British authority turned around and then sold the rights to that land to someone else. They're like, <laughs> well, they'd make land grants, you know, they like know, sold the land grants to the yeah. to other, you know, companies or speculators mm-hmm. or, or whatever. Absolutely. Oh, and, That's and a great money making. <laughs> well, it was, um, some of Endeavor. these traders, uh, for example, uh, example, a lot of the Augusta traders, Lachlan McGillivray, the first comes to mind. He started out in 1735, immigrates from Northern Scotland, ends up in South Carolina as a pack horseman. And within 10 to 15 years, he's got his own trade house in central Alabama in the heart of Creek country, just a couple miles from the French fort, French fort of Toulouse. And he marries into the tribe. She was Wind Clan. He has progeny with her. Um, his, uh, the eldest son, uh, Alexander McGillivray. He has educated in Charleston. Uh, he gained some business experience in Charleston and, and uh, Augusta, no, Savannah. And then by the time the American Revolution comes about, he's in a really good position, that boy, to to go back to his Creek home country and uh, assume some um, authority within his people. And he's completely, you know, he probably, by this time he probably speaks Latin and Greek better than his original Muscogee language. Um, so he was, he was a great one to step into the role, that dual role of a liaison. And he, and he did, he had a, during the American revolution, he had a commission as a, as a captain, um, as serving as a, what would you call him? A deputy superintendent of the British Southern Indian department. Um, he he served in a few raids, and then once the British are kicked out after the American Revolution, he writes a, a letter of introduction to the Spanish authorities who are now in control of Florida again and says, hey, this is who I am, and this is what I do, and you're going to give me that same job with a promotion, or else I've got 5,000 warriors that are just going to make your life hell. And so they agreed to his position. So he served as an uh, Indian commissary to the Spanish um, for the Creeks, uh, received a commission as a colonel through the Spanish 
and was cre- um, collecting a stipend. Um, he also had three plantations, a uh, couple, three wives, and about 65 slaves. So, he so, was, he, so he was a guy who was able to take advantage of and and prosper in the, that system of the because global his economy dad had, and uh, so, understanding. You know, by the yeah. time his dad um, is done being a trade house, you know, uh, 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 operating a trade house as a trader within Creek Country, but prior to the revolution, he's already got. Uh, a couple places of his. He's got a townhouse in Augusta. He's got another trade house just north of Augusta. He's got a huge plantation just outside of Savannah, right on the edge mm-hmm. of Savannah. Um, he's raising um, racehorses and rice and exporting rice. And then he has another plantation in Jamaica that he puts one of his cousins on to manage, uh, as well as is kind of a. He still has his hands in the trading empire, is, is, but he's he's rising through those levels of speculation that we talked about, um, getting higher and higher and higher to to where he's you know super wealthy aristocrat. The problem is he, he was a staunch loyalist, and so when the American mm-hmm. Revolution come around, about the time his son Alex goes back to Creek Country, he's a loyalist, and and a lot of his property was basically confiscated by the the Whig. Uh, you know, the more Whiggish authorities there in, in Georgia. So it didn't work out. He, 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 he did all right. He goes back to Scotland. Um, we don't know that he ever has anything to do with his, uh, Creek progeny, his children and grandchildren that he, he had. Um, but. So uh, speaking of the McGillivray, mm-hmm. um, the Alexander McGillivray, can you tell us a little bit, cause I know we're kind of moving toward the end of the episode and I really want to touch on, uh, the new the Treaty of New York mm-hmm. in um, seventeen ninety because it's it's the first treaty it's the first um, treaty with a foreign nation that our nation the United States and the post constitutional yes. treaty with Native Americans yeah. yes Which, and, and he considered that a foreign treaty because yes. they had their own nation yeah just um, like the the British had to had to figure out that we can't let the the individual colonies deal on their own all willy dilly we did the same thing as Americans. And uh, that was the first test case of our federal government having the authority to go over the state's head and deal with the tribes directly. Um, and so this, the Creek Treaty of 1790 is a treaty that establishes, you know, you have to understand, you know, we talked about this dependence on foreign manufactured goods. Well, what happens when the main source is now kicked out of the, off the continent mm-hmm. now? The, oh, yeah. You know, and, and that was a huge crisis because the, the Creeks that knew that they, these Americans, they, they were just as dependent on these foreign manufactured goods as they were. Mm-hmm. So how are they expected to maintain their status? Well, they had a little reprieve because the Spanish, through Alexander McGillivray, were able to import British goods through a British trading company and British trading partners and continue the trade under British under Spanish auspices through this British trading firm, uh, Pant and Leslie and Company, um, which uh, McGillivray got a one-eighth silent partnership in for... Uh, you know, figuring that out. But then once, uh, you know, once that goes away, the, the Americans are going to have to assume responsibility for supplying these indigenous peoples with their needs and wants. Mm-hmm. And they were just as, um, you know, we just hadn't had that emerging manufacturing core here in, in America. Yeah. We couldn't and, make anything. No, right. <laughs> I mean, we were, but not enough. And not so, enough. Yeah. Not enough. And that's why the Spanish had to do it through, the, through that British company. So, huh. What they do is, um, we so 
we still need to stave off a war because we got Pontiac's rebellion looming in the foreground there in the Ohio. We've got British forts that have yet been to cede, uh, yet been ceded over to American hands. Um, you know, the last thing America wants to do is go right into an Indian war after we fought the revolution. Now that we really don't have a standing army, uh, and, and so forth. So, so the best option was to treat with the Creek nation, which is what, what happened in 1790. They tried and tried and tried to get, um, them to, to come to a, a delegation and they resisted, um, because they were pretty much happy with the Spanish situation and trading through the Panton and Panton and Leslie company. But, uh, eventually they realized that there was a lot of commotion going on with the Georgians. The Georgians were ever increasingly squatting on Creek land. Um, Settlers were illegally squatting. Uh, they were invading. There was horse thievery. There was illegally hunting going on. And so the, the the feds had to step in. Federal Congress had to step in and say, look, you know, and it had never been done before. So that's mainly what that Creek Treaty of New York was all about, was the first test case of can the federal government, can our constitutional government step in and deal with these indigenous nations um, and, and, you know, that really upset the Georgians, uh, but, but they did get a land session out of it. To be honest, what doesn't? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, <laughs> All the people listening in Georgia saying, writing angry emails. Um, that's, a, that's actually a really interesting dynamic that, that you point, but that, that, that sort of brings to light in that, you know, post-revolution, the native tensions with the United States are sort of inherent in the dynamics of the relationships. It's like the United States doesn't want these native nations becoming closer with Britain or one of the other colonial powers for fear of them being able to make them against the United States. So they're saying like, Hey, you got to be friends with us, but the native nations are saying, you can't give us what we need. Right. So, you know, the, there's a, 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 like that tension there, that conflict is like inherent in the, in the dynamics of the relationship. Yeah, the greatest um, for, quote that explains that was from McGillivray. I think it was into his initial letter to the Spanish authorities in Pensacola and St. Augustine, where he wrote that our um, the, Sp- the the Indian Alliance or Creek Alliance goes directly to those who best supply their needs. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's basically what the trade was all about. You know, once they became completely dependent on foreign manufactured goods their their autonomy was and the sovereignty saw a major loss because mm-hmm. their livelihood was at the whim of those who were supplying their needs depending on which you know which entity you're looking at whether it's the british british france or spanish and uh you know i think we as americans and one of the reasons i am so passionate about this topic is i think we could consider you know ourselves being in that same position you know, when you talk about the creeks being 10,000 hides in debt as early as 1715, it's like, well, we're what now? Like 30 trillion yeah. in yeah. debt? Like, we, we can never just pay that. Just a few off. bucks. Yeah, just a few <laughs> bucks. And, and it's growing. I, last I heard yesterday, it was growing by nearly a trillion dollars a month. Oh my gosh. And, and it's like, what's the point of keeping track anymore? And, and where are we at with that? And what's going to happen to us? Um, as a result of the accumulation of national debt, or, it's an interesting you know, question. Um, that it, I think, 
looking back on history could provide some insights. Obviously, there are differences between what debt is and how debt functions now versus then, but definitely not. There's definitely insight to be gained by understanding how the, a loss of domestic manufacturing and self-reliance uh, affects nations over time. Because it, it that is, you know, go make purchase that thing. If you see a Made in America sticker for a company that pays good wages to the folks that work it, that can buy the stuff that they have, like, you know, go ahead and support that place. It's, it's worth it having that stuff here versus having that somewhere somewhere else. But um Anyway, I, we are coming to the end, and um, but we covered a ton of really good information. Um, Bo, are there any good books on these topics that you would recommend to our listeners if they want to dive a little bit further? Absolutely. The first and foremost is is one of my Bibles, um, and of course we we had her on the the docu series, and that's Deer Skins mm-hmm. and Duffels by Catherine Holland Braun. Um, she wrote just a, a fantastic dissection of how this all works uh the numbers are really great as far as like the quantities of deer skins and and population estimates throughout time um it's just it's just a timeless work um another one by uh joshua piker joshua piker zakfoski takes one particular creek town which was uh quite a quite a major town in the 18th century and just kind of looks at that one town as a microcosm uh for the greater Hmm trade um so that's that's a fantastic book most of the most of the books on this subject have to do with with the creek or muskogee in particular um because they were just located close enough to a lot of waterways to be able to dominate a lot of the trade Mm uh and then um the other if you want to learn more about the traders and and the mcgillivrays the mcgillivray and mcintosh traders of the old southwest by amos wright um, the late Amos Wright, and that is an absolute like Bible of gene- genealogy of the McGillivrays and the, and the McIntoshes, and a lot of people in the South still are descended from these people. Um, but uh, is, is that the book that has his journals in it as part of the? No, that uh, oh. um, you're you're thinking about William Coffey's uh, Alexander McGillivray. Or McGillivray of the Creeks that was published in the 1939, biography. and that gotcha. that's more of a biography on, but it's very old. Um, it, it heavily reliant on uh, the original historian of Alabama, published in 1851. You know, a lot of that's a little loosey goosey, but uh, sure. no, William Coffey's uh, um, McGillivray of the Creeks um, that has a lot of the original letters. So be like the Alexander McGillivray papers and that's easy right. to find. And then, um, Ed Cashin wrote a lovely biography on Lachlan McGillivray, but, uh, Amos Wright really, um, went above and beyond both those two works in my mind. But, uh, if I, if I could pick one, definitely Catherine Braun's deer skins and duffels. Very cool. Well, all those links to all those books will be in the description below. Um, and Bo, is there any, um, for our audience, uh, Lynn knows exactly what your schedule is, but <laughs> I might as well ask. Um, it, for the audience it, and for us, is there any place where we, they can come and see your work, whether that's interpreting or or, or explaining some of this, this kind of stuff, um, yeah. if they live in the Virginia area? Yeah. Um, right now I'm portraying James Monroe at Monroe's Highland. Uh, I portray Patrick Henry for the Hanover County and uh, Hanover Tavern uh, about a few times a year. Um, but I'll be I'll be anywhere from Florida 
Georgia. I've, I've done work across the country as far away as Wyoming and Utah, um, New York. So, so I'll go anywhere, but, but if you, if you're, um, if you're wanting to see something, probably any living history event in Virginia, um, or within close proximity there too, but I'll, I'll probably be in Florida this winter. Um, and you can find me on my website, bowrobbins.com. Right. Yeah. So if you run into Monroe at Highland, make sure you ask his opinion on the deer skin trail. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll get Monroe's opinion, right? Not you get Monroe's right. opinion. I don't break character to the roll the DVD commentary. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, um, Lynn, for sharing your husband with us on the show and Bo for sharing My all pleasure. of your knowledge. <laughs> Yeah, Bo has been is an invaluable historical resource, and I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thanks. thanks so much. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the full episode of Too Complicated for History. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and if you did, please leave us a review on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on our social platforms at 2C4H underscore podcast, or check out the link in the description. This will keep you in the loop for show updates, new episodes, and exclusive content. Too Complicated for History is a podcast from Primary Source Media, produced by Patrick Long and Lynn Price Robbins, edited and mixed by Curtis Fritch, opening theme music by Sheena Biratella.